Hello and welcome to the Hardy Report. My name's Edward Hardy and for today's interview I'm joined by Shahid Buttar, who's running for Congress in California's 12th Congressional District. Shahid Buttar, thank you for joining me. Thanks so much for having me on, Edward. It's a pleasure to be with you. You're one of a number of Democrats who have or are currently challenging established Democrats, but your race is particularly unique because of who you're looking to replace in Congress, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Why have you decided to run for office and in particular challenge Nancy Pelosi? The very short answer is that she is the federal representative who represents me, or more accurately, has failed to represent me over the 20 years that I've been a member of this community. The further answer there is that as a civil rights lawyer and advocate for human rights and civil liberties, I've grown tired of our concerns falling on the deaf ears of career politicians who put their interests before those of their constituents and before those of the country and on issues from executive accountability to foreign policy, healthcare, climate justice, our representative in Washington, the Democratic Speaker of the House, has proven entirely too conservative, both for the American people and certainly for San Franciscans. And that's why I'm going to replace her next year. There are those who might be a bit surprised by that characterization of Nancy Pelosi because there's a view among a lot of people that she's quite a progressive Democrat. Why do you think that's a myth? Well, I, I think the corporate media does a good job of constructing characters and often caricatures out of politicians. And the simple reason I think that many people think of Nancy Pelosi as a progressive is that she is often cited as the antithesis to an unapologetically uh, racist, fascist, aspiring tyrant. And unfortunately, when you look at the facts beyond the headlines, her governance has on issue after issue, rather than challenge, our criminal president's foreign policy or his concentration camps or his fiscal austerity rules for Congress, Speaker Pelosi has supported uh, the president time and time again. On impeachment is a good example. On executive accountability, she very recently showed up to support a very limited impeachment inquiry. This is after having dragged her feet for a year. Uh, we and many other voices around the country have been pounding the drum for months saying, if we don't impeach this criminal president, we will be inviting no limit of future crimes and barbarity from his successors. And uh, whether it was remembering her constitutional oath and deciding finally to show up for it, or whether it was simply taking advantage of breaking news in the form of the intelligence community's whistleblower reports about the president's invitation to foreign powers to interfere in US elections, um, we're glad she's finally doing something to show up for her oath of office, but we'd note you know, that the current inquiry doesn't address the president's litany of uh, corrupt acts. It doesn't address the many times the continuing uh, ways in which he takes taxpayer money and puts it in his pocket. And the vice president has done the same thing, enriching the president at taxpayer expense. And those are issues that ultimately absolutely need to be included. When you ask the question, why, do more, why don't more people realize the facts beyond the headlines? I think it really does speak to a crisis in our civic culture and the inability for so many people to track narratives in which the underlying facts are disputed. And this is one of the predictable consequences, I dare say, of a president who no, has no relationship with the truth whatsoever. You know, I, I don't know the last time Donald Trump spoke a, a, a non-false accurate word 
but I think the, the consequence of gaslighting the American public is that people are struggling to understand simply what is, you know, which way is up and is the sky green or blue? And so many of our political presumptions have been cast into the air at the moment. And I think a lot of people are clinging to the false hope that the Democratic Party will uh, stand with we, the people of the United States, instead of the corporations of the United States. But ultimately, anybody who's been paying attention to politics recognizes that Speaker Pelosi and many of the corporate Democrats absolutely put Wall Street before the country. They put Wall Street before their constituents, and they put Wall Street before working families in the future. One of the big criticisms that Speaker Pelosi has faced, you touched on it in the answer there, is how long it took her to come around and publicly support impeachment. You obviously think that was too long, but if you were in Congress, what would have been the moment you called for Donald Trump to be impeached? I would say everyone, well, certainly the first day of office. I mean, the emoluments violations with this president, I've written about the case for impeachment, and I do emphasize very much the <clears throat> violations, the emoluments cause is the Constitution's prohibition on public officials enriching themselves <clears throat> at taxpayer expense. And the very first time the president did this was even before he took office, right? Every time he took a Secret Service detail to one of his expensive resorts, and that started before he took office, he's taking taxpayer money and putting it in his pocket. Every time Pence goes to one of Trump's resorts, he's doing the same thing. Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, a nonprofit watchdog group in DC, documented on a single trip uh, Pence charging over half a million dollars to the American people just for the limo service to take a detour to stay at one of Trump's um, uh, resort properties while on an international delegation. That's all impeachable. Every lie to Congress and the American people is a discreet impeachable offense. The other thing I would add to your list there and that I also think is among the more compelling grounds for impeachment is the president's documented incitement to violence and his broad characterization of entire groups of people in very demeaning terms, you know, and lumping, uh, you know, people of an entire national origin into the broad bucket of rapists uh, and murderers when, you know, looked at the facts, the worst rapist here, you know, seems to be the one casting the stone from his own glass house. Uh, and I'm decidedly unwilling, the, the bigger issue than any of those discrete things, the lies, the incitement, the self-enrichment, the bigger thing than any of those discrete impeachable acts. And the reason I think that Speaker Pelosi took so long to finally show up for her oath of office is a bigger issue than any issue, and that is to say the willingness of Congress to demonstrate independence. Speaker Pelosi has never been terribly independent from the executive branch 10 years ago, uh, longer than that, 15 years ago, she was funding, choosing to fund Bush's wars. The veterans of the Iraq War explained that to me as Speaker Pelosi refusing to let tired troops come home and return to their families. And these are wars that were entirely unpopular at the time. They were breaches of international law. They exacerbated the climate crisis. The, you know, the devastating impacts on U.S. and global security continue to unfold today. Uh, and she was entirely a part of it. Uh, she signed the, uh, you know, she voted for the Patriot Act. She helped sweep CIA torture under the rug. She's never done much to defend communities suffering from police violence. You know, the, the first responsibility of Congress is to check and balance the executive branch. And on issue after issue for years, you know, my entire uh, uh, political life over the last 20 years, I've seen Speaker Pelosi support conservative presidents because she puts the beltway and the military industrial complex before the Constitution. 
And in my mind, that is not only a violation of her oath, but it is disqualifying. And the people of the district seem to feel the same way. Do you think that Speaker Pelosi has taken that approach, lost what many have seen as the traditional democratic roots and beliefs due to the years she spent in Congress becoming anesthetized to Congress and the way it acts, becoming part of the congressional machine rather than pushing fully the policies that they believe in, being more willing to compromise than take what they can get rather than what they want to get? I would describe that as an at least charitable explanation, one, one potential explanation that is generally charitable towards the speaker. That view would generally describe her unwillingness to champion progressive policies like single-payer universal health care or a robust solution to the climate crisis as failures to achieve a shared vision. And the one place I'd push back, and the reason that I don't generally share that view, is that while you know, that view would presume, again, that her <clears throat> unwillingness to stand with her constituents is a bug, not a feature. And I would say it's, it's not the case that Speaker Pelosi has proven ineffective in championing progressive values. It is that she has proven unwilling. And ultimately, when she is leaning on the scale, it's not that she's leaning insufficiently hard on progressive interests. She is actively promoting conservative ones. I'll just give you one example. At the very beginning of this congressional session, even before the session was convened, Speaker Pelosi imposed the pay-go rules. This is short for pay-as-you-go. These are Republican fiscal austerity measures, basically accounting rules that privilege military spending and place spending on social needs at a relative disadvantage by requiring spending, for instance, on affordable housing or food stamps to be offset by Congress by corresponding tax increases or spending cuts in other programs. For 20 years, Republicans and Democrats had fought tooth and nail over these rules. She is the first Democrat in a leadership position to embrace them. When Democrats impose Republican rules on the caucuses that they lead, I think it becomes very hard to sustain the proposition that they have been uh, that they have been at all supportive of progressive interests, whether you know too weakly or or or, uh, or not, it seems to me there that that particular narrative can only be explained, uh, frankly, by Speaker Pelosi. For whatever reason, and I wish I could explain it, uh, proving you know you're suggesting that she's ineffective. I would say, unfortunately, she's she's complicit, um, and and either answer, frankly, is insufficient. You know, San Francisco deserves someone who's going to fight for its values, and whether she's co-opted or intimidated, uh, or unwilling, you know, whatever the explanation, I, I think, you know, she's had 30 years to show up and, you know, we're, we're done waiting. Another progressive issue where Speaker Pelosi has come under fire for her lack of willingness to support is the Green New Deal. You've said one of the reasons behind your decision to run for Congress is that, quote, our species can't wait another day for the Green New Deal. Why do you believe a Green New Deal is so important and so necessary for addressing the climate crisis? I would say for me, it's a recognition of the scientific consensus. And, and Speaker Pelosi, to her credit, acknowledges the scientific consensus. To her uh, uh, you know, discredit, I suppose, unfortunately, she refuses to heed it. And the UN climate scientists around the world have made very clear that 
you know, beyond any nation's security interests, beyond any nation's economic interests, our species is threatened with existential risks that will mount and continue to mount over the next decade. And we have about a decade left to uh, dramatically reduce climate emissions before we reach a, a point of no return. And I think one reason I'm very committed to the Green New Deal is simply because I care about the future. And I wish, frankly, that Speaker Pelosi did too. If a Green New Deal is so important in counteracting the impact of climate change, and as you mentioned there, climate scientists believe that the proposals put forward in the Green New Deal are important and necessary steps, why are so many politicians from both sides, there are other Democrats, not just Speaker Pelosi, who are opposed or are unwilling to support and push for a Green New Deal, why don't they support it? Because a lot of people listening might think it makes no sense to oppose or not support a policy like this when the science is in its favor. Well, and frankly, those listeners who, who wonder why, you know, who think it, there's no good reason to oppose a policy where the science is so clear, they're right. There is no good reason to oppose a policy where the science is so clear. The reason so many corporate Democrats are unfortunately arrayed against the policies that we need to defend the future from the failures of the past is precisely because they are representatives of the past. They, they found their way to office by supporting corporate interests. And it's those corporate interests that enable their careers. You know, Speaker Pelosi's most substantial industrial contributors, the, you know, the sectors from which she raises the most money include the oil and gas industry and pharmaceutical companies, which is a very straightforward explanation why she refuses to support the Green New Deal and why she refuses to support single-payer universal health care. And at the end of the day, it's not as if most members of Congress <clears throat> have a particular attachment to a set of ideas. Most members of Congress have a particular attachment to themselves. And their careers mean that they carry the water and they carry the favor of particular industrial interests. I'm not like that. There's no corporation, there's no industry that owns me. You know, I've spent my career fighting government agencies and corrupt industries. And that's why I'm running for office, because I'm tired of those agencies and industries having congressional patrons instead of interlocutors. And another way of describing the same phenomenon is, is careerism. You know, these are people who uh, they put their careers first. And, and that's exactly why we need to replace them. Do you think a way to stop politicians from putting their careers first, getting too comfortable in the environment on Capitol Hill, would be term limits, restricting how long politicians can serve in Congress? Because then they're not there making a career out of running for office and being a politician in Congress. They're running for office to serve their constituents for a specific amount of time to do the most good they can in that time? It's, it's a uh, thoughtful, linear perspective, but it does overlook a few things. On the one hand, legislative term limits would ensure turnover in discrete seats, but there's a couple things that that analysis overlooks. The first is that the biggest problem here is institutional, not individual. And by requiring turnover, in individual discrete seats, we basically deny the institution of Congress expertise and experience as it emerges. The, the problem precisely, I think, is that Congress has insufficient leadership. The leaders that are there, the people who've been there for a long time, are careerists instead of constitutionalists. A legislative term limit would deny Congress both the continued service of careerists and constitutionalists. I think the stronger way to get there 
are institutional reforms that empower members of Congress to be independent from the executive branch. For instance, in the intelligence oversight arena, most members of Congress don't have staff that are cleared to review classified information. And they're not effectively allowed to participate in conversations about issues, including, for instance, CIA torture, or who, if anybody, should be held accountable for it. Um, those are issues that, frankly, members of Congress have very informed opinions about. They should be allowed to participate. They should be actively enabled to participate by having staff that are cleared to participate in uh, you know, sensitive conversations uh, where the underlying source material is not open to the public. And we don't do that. So institutionally empowering Congress, not simply removing its longest serving members, I think is the stronger way to get to establishing congressional independence from the executive branch. Similarly, I think in discrete seats where we see individual legislators prove to be <clears throat> unfortunately complicit with the establishment and government and corporate institutions, the remedy there is at the ballot box. I mean, that's why I'm, why I'm running to replace Pelosi. A further corollary there is that a legislative term limit would make the end of their careers predictable. The Pelosi basically are building a family dynasty the open secret in, in San Francisco is that uh, Speaker Pelosi aims to put her daughter in her seat to serve uh, or co-opt the city's voice for another generation. And a legislative term limit wouldn't block that kind of handoff in any way. What we need is a popular mandate for a renewed commitment to our stated principles, as opposed to a continued allowance for corporations to fleece the American public and deny working families in the future viable opportunities for a safe and secure life. In that answer there, you mentioned members of Congress holding the security services in America accountable, being able to have conversations about classified material and ensure that the security services acted within the boundaries of the law. In 2015, you were arrested at a Senate Armed Services Committee meeting for confronting James Clapper, who was then the Director of National Intelligence. You demanded that he be held accountable for false statements on the scope of NSA surveillance. Why do you think that if it's the job of members of Congress to hold individuals like James Clapper accountable, why do you think no one has been held accountable for misleading the public over NSA surveillance and the extent of it. I hate to sound like a broken record, but I think the reason no one's been held accountable um, in Congress for failing to do the job of checking and balancing the executive branch is because they're all careerists and they have a, a wall of secrecy. It's not unlike the challenge with police accountability where <clears throat> cops protect each other. And you know, one of the challenges in attaining justice when unarmed people end up dead at the hands of a cop, uh, one of those challenges have been getting independent voices from within police departments to contradict the official narrative of the committers of violence or the you know, abusers or some cases, the murderers, right? I mean, in Congress, similarly, we have a cabal of people who put their careers first, who think that their primary job is to represent the corporations of the United States. And we can't frankly blame them because according to the campaign finance system that they came through, that, that is exactly how they got to office. I mean, they got to office by championing corporate interests. They've been there championing corporate interests, and no one should be surprised, frankly, that that's what they're there for. Uh, so I, I wouldn't necessarily um, characterize any of this as terribly surprising, but the, the reason Congress has to engage here 
Uh, I would put the, it's simply read the constitution, right? Our constitution is, is a very elaborate document, a scheme to divide power specifically to prevent it from being misused. And the founders were explicit about this in the Federalist Papers, uh, which were written to essentially explain the Constitution and promote it at the, you know, the, uh, the nascent days of the Republic to help build a popular consensus for our constitutional framework. The founders wrote very explicitly, um, uh, the Federalist Number 10, for instance, is this uh, analysis of the power of factions and how they can destabilize a Republic. And in a country committed to free speech and committed to political freedoms, we can't suppress the power of factions. So the only way to ensure liberty, according to the founders, is to invite more factions to proliferate, more speech, more voices to prevent anyone from dominating the rest. And unfortunately, we've seen coalescence, convergence in Congress, both around <clears throat> a pair of partisan centers of gravity. But further, and this gets to a question that you raised maybe 10 minutes ago, I think as people continue to serve in Washington and they become inculcated in a culture, they inevitably grow complicit uh, unless they choose to resist it. And I want to offer one very <clears throat> uh, positive example here. Um, Representative Ilhan Omar is someone who I aim very much to emulate in Congress. She has asked very tough questions. She's asked questions that no one's ever asked before. And when she had a chance to in an oversight hearing, posed questions to a Reagan administration era war criminal by the name of Elliot Abrams, unlike every other member of Congress sent by their constituents and their corporate donors to Washington, who basically, you know, rolled out a red carpet for this criminal, she asked him questions that he should have been answering 30 years ago. And frankly, that no one had ever asked him before. I, I share that propensity to ask tough questions. In 2015, I was arrested in the US Senate hearing chamber this is after the conclusion of a hearing by the Senate Armed Services Committee, at the time chaired by the late Senator John McCain. An Obama-era official, the Director of National Intelligence at the time, James Clapper, uh, was testifying before the committee. Uh, he never at any point in the hearing was asked about his misrepresentations to the Senate two years before. And so just to set this stage, two years before, he had told uh, the Senate Intelligence Committee in response to a direct question that he had written notice about from Senator Ron Wyden, the Democrat from Oregon. Uh, Director Clapper claimed that the NSA, the National Security Agency, was not monitoring, or at least not wittingly monitoring, millions of Americans. And we discovered through documents that he lied through his teeth, under oath, on national television, about an issue of grave constitutional importance. And the way we found out is because a young government contractor gave up his career to do the right thing blew a whistle, that contractor, Edward Snowden, is now in international exile, while Director Clapper, who lied to the Senate, has a public pension. And the members of Congress who voted for the programs whose predictable impact Snowden revealed, they, many of them are still in office. And that's another reason why I'm running, because you know I've done everything I can to challenge mass surveillance. I've been a plaintiff in a court case. I've led a national nonprofit for six years. I've fought from coast to coast at the state level, at the local level at the federal level to fight mass surveillance. I've been invited by multiple members of Congress to brief the body and their staffs about proposed surveillance reforms. I've done banner drops off of highway overpasses outside the NSA. I've done a light brigade at the White House. I have a music video explaining to people the Edward Snowden revelations and how they fit in the broader historical context. You know, I've written articles and chapters and books about this. I, there's nothing else I can think of to do to defend my neighbors in our constitution other than remove one of the proponents 
of the aggrandizement of the executive branch, remove one of the architects of mass surveillance, and replace, frankly, a voice that not only has voted for mass surveillance and continues to insulate it from a popular critique, but one of the voices that enforces discipline across the Democratic caucus to ensure that independent voices don't emerge. You know, I'm not just taking out a random member of Congress. I'm going after the head of the corporate Democrats. And, you know, I'm very eager to uh, step into a future where we don't have very prolific fundraisers policing the Democratic Party and limiting the progressive aspirations of a country and a people who need change. Part of your beliefs around that is your support for the Internet Bill of Rights and, as you mentioned in the answer, your desire to end mass surveillance embodied in the Patriot Act. There are those individuals, though, who oppose your views on this who would argue that mass surveillance of this nature is crucial to national security. What would you say to those individuals and How would you convince them that the line you're drawing is more beneficial to Americans than their view of mass surveillance to protect citizens? Thank you for posing so important a question. You know, I I would approach this any of several ways. My first answer is just to quote Dr. King. You know, we are here to hold the country true to what we already said on paper. Uh, and And that's the first way. Another way to say that is that the founders these aren't new problems. The founders anticipated all this. And we agreed long ago, constitutionally, which is to say at a more fundamental bedrock layer, that we would not do this. Among the reasons why is because we guard rights to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures. That's the Fourth Amendment to the US Constitution. And many people overlook the ways in which our First Amendment rights are also implicated. That is the right to speech, the right to assembly, the right to petition the government for redress of grievances, even the rights to conscience embodied in the establishment and the free exercise clauses. Um, And maybe let's, let's take another crack to try to explain that. A lot of people who take the establishment view of surveillance pretend that or accept that the, I, they, they, they presume to accept the notion that surveillance enhances security. And I want to press on that from a few different dimensions. First, empirically, it's not true. The, the P club is the, Civil Liberties Oversight Board, the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, it found in 2015 in a study of one of the government surveillance programs, it happens to be up for renewal this year, Section 215 of the Patriot Act uh, is set to expire at the end of this year. And in 2015, the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, which examined all the evidence, concluded that it had never actually helped U.S. national security at all. Um, And in fact, if you look at the court cases that have emerged from it, uh, there's only one, and even it is dubious if the translator's report suggests that the government was prosecuting people who were actually cooperating with uh, U.S. military uh, services on the ground in Somalia in this case. But the, the point here is that it doesn't actually enhance security, but it does do something. And the question then is, what is that? What is the something that surveillance does? Surveillance chills speech. And there's a corollary here that a lot of Americans forget. The First Amendment doesn't just protect your right to speak, it also protects your right to hear from anyone. And the key to understanding how surveillance destroys not just privacy, but dissent and through it threatens our democracy is understanding the history here. We do have a First Amendment and a Fourth Amendment. We've had them from the beginning. That hasn't stopped our government, the US government from repeatedly in the 1910s, 
again in the 1940s and through the 1970s, into the 80s, 90s, and in the present day, the U.S. government has taken dramatic actions to, in the words of the FBI, neutralize domestic social movements, the civil rights movement, the movement for peace in Vietnam, the movement for peace in Iraq, the movement for equal rights for women, the movement for Puerto Rican independence, the Native American uh, uh, rights and independence and sovereignty movement, pipeline resistance, animal rights activists, earth liberation activists, like you name it. In the United States, groups pursuing a wide range of interests have faced targeted government infiltration, surveillance, and neutralization. And understanding that history helps explain why when we talk about surveillance programs, we can't pretend that it's actually about security. In the past, it's never been about security in the United States. In 1976, when the US Senate last investigated our intelligence agencies, book three of the George Committee Report, and contains this as a direct quote from it, uh, describes the counterintelligence programs that the Bureau maintained for 40 years as a, quote, sophisticated vigilante operation aimed squarely at suppressing the legitimate exercise of First Amendment rights to speech and association. So for Americans who buy the official narrative of surveillance, I would just invite them particularly to read the words of Dr. King, as he describes our stated commitments, and to examine the man's experience, which reflects this very sordid history. He was targeted by the FBI, which surveilled him, monitored him, and tried to blackmail him into committing suicide. That's all on the public record. The documents are all there. That's someone who we laud and respect today as a national hero. There's a national holiday in his honor. There's a monument to his honor in Washington. That's how we treat our heroes. Imagine how we treat our dissidents. Um, and we know in Edward Snowden's example, you know, how we treat our whistleblowers. Like the, the idea that, um, that we defer to security agencies requires a profound willingness to abdicate our own constitutional responsibility to ourselves and the American people. Popular sovereignty means a great deal to me as a concept. And we could only accept these kinds of government so-called security measures if we abdicate the need to maintain our own sovereignty and our own independence in viewing these principles and these programs, not just through a lens of acquiescence, but considering actively what liberty means and what it requires and how we are to secure it. And that's another reason why I'm running for this seat to replace Pelosi in the House and to give San Francisco a new voice in Washington. There are many people who are listening who might agree with what you're saying. They might think that these are the sort of views they want from a representative in Congress, but they look at your race here and they see it as an uphill battle against someone who's been in Congress for as long as Speaker Pelosi has and has the solidified control of that seat as she does. What would you say to those individuals? And do you think that San Francisco is more progressive country than Pelosi country? So San Francisco is absolutely more progressive country than Pelosi country. And I would just establish this too many of several ways. This is a epicenter of the movement for climate justice. San Francisco has a long and storied history in the peace and justice movement. We are a mecca to uh, the rights of minorities that are vulnerable in other places, including LGBTQ minorities and religious minorities. Um, our city has proudly been the one of, if not the most progressive city in the entire country of the United States, not just for years, but for decades. Uh, this is the countercultural capital of the United States, and we've been represented in Congress for 30 years by someone who has been much more willing to put the beltway before 
peace and justice, to put oil and gas companies before climate justice, to put the interest of weapons manufacturers before uh, peace and human rights. And, uh, you know, th that is exactly the issue is that the incumbent and the district are so wildly in different places. Another way to present this to folks is that for 30 years, San Francisco's voice in Congress has been effectively co-opted by corporate contributions from other parts of the country. Again, pharmaceutical companies and oil and gas industries are her leading benefactors. These are corporations in other parts of the country that have neutralized San Francisco's voice by sending a corporate representative instead of a people's representative on behalf of the city to the House. Uh, when I look at both Pelosi's support and our campaign, I see multiple reinforcing reasons for confidence. Uh, Folks from the outside looking in might note that Speaker Pelosi has you know, won large voting percentages in the past and that she raises a ton of money and that she hasn't, in the last 30 years, um, you know, had, a, had a, uh, a fight for the seat that has really pressed her. And other ways to think about that, though, one, she hasn't mounted a campaign in 30 years. There is no, frankly, base for her in the city. The only thing that's kept her in office is corporate money and inertia. Our campaign in the last five months that we've been active leading up, you know, we're gearing up for the November 2020 election. And in the last five months, we've raised a quarter million dollars. We've secured a uh, growing body of endorsements, including former elected officials in the city, including national leaders in the movements for black lives, uh, environmental justice, peace and justice, uh, internet rights. And those voices recognize, as we do, that San Francisco is ready for a change. And when I look at the numbers, you know, between our numbers of volunteers, uh, our financial support, we have nearly 6,000 donors in every state in the country, plus DC and Puerto Rico. There are US expats and foreign countries that are contributing to our campaign. The sun literally never sets on our support base. We are mounting objectively and empirically the strongest campaign that Pelosi has ever had to confront. Our air game is stronger than any campaign that's ever confronted her. Our ground game is stronger than any campaign that's confronted her. And we still have an entire year left to build before the election. So for folks who are, uh, you know, agree with our voice and think that maybe it is an uphill fight, I would just suggest, uh, you know, we could use your help leveling the playing field. And I have every intention of liberating this seat and the thousands of people around the country and around the, you know, among U.S. citizens around the world that are supporting us, they all seem to agree. This will certainly be a race to watch in 2020. Shahib Bhutta, thank you for joining me. Thanks again for bringing me on, Edward. It's a pleasure. That was Shahib Bhutta, who's running for Congress in California's 12th congressional district. You can find out more about him on Twitter at Shahid for Change or at shahidforchange.us. That's all for this week. What did you think about that interview? Let me know on Twitter at Edward T. Hardy. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to give us a five-star rating and subscribe. Until next time, goodbye.